So, if you haven't um, been following along, if you haven't been part of our online services for the last few weeks, we've been going through an election series, Faith and Politics, Culture Shift, you can see that up there, where we've been discussing what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of God's kingdom and also a citizen of New Zealand. Um, and so what it means to be a citizen of a, of a democratic country and what our roles and responsibilities are and how the two worlds mix together. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I kind of talked a little bit more generally from Romans chapter 13, and we talked about how we owe what we owe our government. Um, and and the, Paul talks about if you owe taxes, pay taxes, if you owe honor, pay honor. And we talked about what does it mean to live in a democracy? What do we owe? And we talked about owing the government our voice, our vote. We've been given not just the right, but the responsibility to speak forward. And we talked about how our vote is kind of our way of giving our opinion, our best wisdom, guiding the government towards a place where we feel like is best for the nation. So each of us have that voice, um, and so, of course, collectively, the government will be able to sort of take on that, um, that guidance. Uh, last week, we talked about the cannabis referendum, as Nate mentioned, and Aaron Ironside, um, who's, uh, he did an interview, and that's part of that really, really good stuff as well. So if you have not heard those, um, I recommend getting onto the podcast. I'm not normally one for pushing my stuff, but I really think this is... Um, an important series for us to be thinking about, especially as we head out this week and on Saturday, I believe, is election day or if you're going to vote early. Just to give us... Yeah, I mentioned, sorry, that, that it's, it's not about telling you how to vote. We are not in the business of saying, you need to vote this. That's important to remember because it might sound a little bit like that today because I, I'm kind of definitively going in one direction today. But the point is not that we tell you how to vote, but that we kind of guide you and help equip you with what God's perspective is on these issues so that you go into those polling arenas armed with a sense of a biblical perspective on, on the issues on the table. And then you can make your choice based on that and how God is leading and guiding you. Does that make sense? Yep, we're all good. Good. So in the Bible app, there's a link to the previous messages. There's two others in there. Um, highly recommend you go in and have a look. And if there are people you come across who are wondering, questioning, thinking about some of these issues, uh, you can always point them into that place as well. All right, so this week we're talking about the end-of-life referendum. This is the hard one. This is the one that really carries with it a lot of emotion. It is a deeply emotional issue for both sides of the debate. For both sides, it's, it's not just a sort of logistical thing. It's not just an opinion thing. We're talking about life. We're talking about people's lives, and we're talking about people's suffering. And that's no small thing. And so it's very easy for us to kind of get really wound up and really heated about some of these issues. We came across the same issue when um, abortion was being debated, and, and we talked about how it's not just the facts and the figures. You can't be clinical about this. As much as we try and be objective, it's very difficult to do that because it is so deeply personal. 
And I'm, I would be remiss if I did not say that this is not something that I have personally encountered with the end-of-life bill. I have, obviously, I've not got a terminal illness. I have not cared for someone who has had a terminal illness. I do know of some people who have recently um, gone through some of this stuff. I know one friend who has got a terminal cancer and another friend who recently passed away. Some of us know him. Um, and so there are knowledge of situations, but I have not personally been involved right in the depths of that moment. I say that because I want you to know that I'm not relying on my own wisdom to come forward and talk about this, because I don't have that much. What I am going to do is I'm going to rely on Scripture, and I'm going to rely on the experiences of a person named Dr. Melissa Collier, who is one of many people who have been deeply involved in palliative care and in helping and being around and working with people who are right in the midst of this suffering situation. All right? So in your Bible app, I've got a link to um, a PDF that she put out. I, I was at a conference and I heard her speak and she had some great notes. And she talks about, she talks it from a Christian perspective, so she's got some great stuff there. But she also talks about the bill um, from a more logistical point of view. And, and she outlines some of the things that she finds very concerning about the way the bill is written, about what the bill means for us as a nation. So I recommend you go onto there, you can click the link and then download it from Google Drive. Um, I think it's about 20 pages of, of just sort of notes and stuff that she's got there. Really interesting stuff, um, really what, worth a look. So I'm not going to get into a lot of that stuff. I'm not going to get into the logistical side or the writing of the bill per se. Um, another website that's a link in your Bible app is riskylaw.nz, which also has a lot of information about some of the concerns that people have, medical professionals and other people have, about this law. Okay. I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to let you go and do your own research along with that. What I want to do and what I feel my conviction is to do today is to try and share God's heart about this question of the choice of ending life. Okay? Um, that's what I want to do. I want to explore that. Before I do this, sorry, I wanted to... No, no, we'll get to that later. Okay, so we're going to dive into the Bible because obviously that's a good place to go when we want to hear from what God has to say. And I want to jump into a story in the book of Job. You guys may have heard of Job. Job is kind of a popular figure. He's a go-to for preachers when talking about suffering and pain in any kind of, of manner. And for really, really good reason. Because when you read the first two chapters of Job, you just get this really depressing picture for this guy. Job is a good man. He's a good dude. He loves God. He does everything that he can to steer clear of evil, to steer clear of things that God doesn't want, and to live a life. That, in fact, so much so that he even goes around trying to cover for his kids. And when his kids have a party and, you know, every birthday, because they're a wealthy family, they would have these big parties and feasts and stuff. And so his dad would come around afterwards and he would offer burnt sacrifices to God just in case in their hearts they may have accidentally or they may have cursed God or they may have gotten drunk and kind of did something stupid. And so he's like, I'm going to get in. I'm going to take care of it. He was so tuned in to God, so much so that God himself shows him up as a person who says, this is a good man. Right? So when God says it, you know you're doing well. Right? 
And yet this really bizarre scene plays out in heaven where, where Satan comes up to God and he says, yeah, Job may be good, but that's because nothing's bad has ever happened to him. I reckon if you sort of took that hedge of protection away and you let him have it, he would curse you. I don't know why God sort of says, all right, let's play this game. Um, we don't actually get a reason in the entire book, which is part of the, the, the moral of this story, but we'll get to that in a second. But anyway, God says to Satan, you know what? Let's do this. Let's test this theory of yours. Go and destroy his life. And I mean destroy his life. And if you have a read of this, it's incredible what happens to this guy. I don't know how long a period of time there is, but I don't think it's very long. He loses his entire fortune. All of his flocks destroyed. All of his workers killed. All of his things gone. And then his children. He has 10 children. All of them killed. And that's not enough for Satan. He wants to go after his health as well. And God says, okay, give it a try. And so he covers him from head to toe in sores. And as we all know now, medically, when you have sores, you have stuff going on inside of you. He's racked with pain. He is destroyed. And we pick up the story with this really pathetic picture of Job. And and he's... It says Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. What a picture of just hopelessness, of pain, of suffering. This guy is just in the pit. So much so that in the end of chapter 2, his friends come along and his friends want to kind of do their you know, nice neighborly thing and, and see how he's going. And they see his suffering is so great, they, they just don't even have words. For seven days, they don't even have anything they can say to this guy um, because he is just suffering so much. Verse 9, his wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Just curse God and die. But Job replied, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, Job said nothing wrong. All right, so I picked this passage very intentionally because I believe that in this little interaction, these few sentences, we have contained the heart of the the referendum debate. The whole heart, the the, the core of this discussion around euthanasia is contained in this conversation. And it begins with the wife and his statement. Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. See, we kind of of give this woman a bit of a hard time when we we tell the story, you know, we, we... we read this story and, and we kind of, we really kind of laugh at the foolish woman comment and, and, and we see like Job has got his integrity, but this woman has just kind of lost it, you know, and, and she's this terrible, despicable person. And her statement of just lose your integrity, curse God and die. I mean, doesn't that, that that's kind of the first impression that we get from the world when they introduce a bill like this. 
And we hear them say that we want to allow people the choice to, to die and to assisted um, death and that sort of thing. And we, we say, oh, here we go again. One more example of our government completely stepping away from God, from removing God from the equation and going into just, just cursing him and cursing the life that he has given people. And we get mad, right? And we get angry because we just, it's another example of this, this heathen world that hates God. Right? That's, what we, that's, that's kind of the attitude that we often have. But if we look a little deeper, we see a bit of a different perspective. Let's have a think about Job's wife. One of the reasons I think that we get this teaching in the form of a story, not just a, here's the moral of the story. In fact, we often have to pull the moral of the story out of the story. We get a story so that we can not just experience the truths that God wants to give us, but also to experience the emotions of the people going through the situation. We can step into their experiences and that we can feel the, the, the struggle and the journey that gets us to the truths God wants us to have. We don't ignore or get rid of those truths, but it gives us a chance to go on that journey with them. And I think in this one especially, it is very, very important. Because think about Job's wife. She has lost everything too. She has lost all of the things that she had. She lost all of the security financially and, and, and ownership that, that she had, that her family had, it's gone. Her 10 children that she birthed, gone. She may have had her health, potentially, I don't know, but she's sitting there looking at her husband, racked in pain. And look, we, we don't get tone of voice, we don't get to see a video of this conversation, so we have to kind of look into it a little bit. It's possible that uh, Job's wife is angry at Job because she's assuming that he has done something wrong. That would have been the prevailing opinion of the day. That he did something wrong and this is a punishment. And now you're dragging me down with this. So just curse God and die so I can be free of this pain. That's possibility. But I sense maybe perhaps it's also a strong possibility that Job's wife has lost everything. Her heart is broken. And on top of all of that, she is watching her loved one writhing in agony, in pain, hopeless, despair. And she's like, I just want his suffering to end. And it can. If you just, just curse God and, and you'll die. And it'll be over. Her voice is the voice of the end of life bill. Her voice is the voice of our culture as they, our culture has experienced pain. Our culture has lost. Our culture is hurting in so many different ways. And then they look upon these poor people at the end of their lives with nothing in front of them but pain. And they just want it to end. This is not a voice of hatred or anger or rebellion. This is a voice of compassion and love. 
And it is so important for us to recognize that. It's important for us to grasp the heart behind her statement to Job and the world's statement to us. We just want relief. We care. Doesn't that make a little sense? A little bit, right? There is sense in this. We can at least understand her desire to see her loved one at peace. We must seek to understand her pain in this situation. People often say, you know, if you haven't felt this pain, like if you haven't been in this situation, if you haven't watched someone you dearly love in agony in the last moments of their lives, you have nothing to say here. You know, they say you have no right to step in and disagree. People say that. (laughs) And people also say that Christians are so quick to their judgments and so quick to their statements of right and wrong that they don't even understand the pain that people are going through. Well, God has given us a gift. And that gift is the story. He's given us an opportunity to not just know and see right and wrong, but to step into the situation to let the story flow over us and to weigh us down and to give us a place to sit in suffering, that we can sit in the ashes with Job and we can see and feel his pain and we can see and feel his wife's pain and to feel the overwhelming desire to bring relief at all costs. Because understanding that pain and that motivation gives more meaning and depth to Job's response. He calls his wife a foolish woman. The emphasis being foolish, not on woman. And we think he's calling her stupid. Right? We think you're being stupid. But biblically, this word foolish is not about being an idiot. It's about being morally deficient. That's what the word means. We look in, in Proverbs and we look in the, some of the books of the Old Testament where there's these two paths set before us. There's wisdom, which is doing what God says because he's in charge and he's smart. And, and, and so we follow him, that's wisdom. And not following him, not taking him into consideration is foolishness because it's removing ourselves from the way God made us. It's, it's choosing a path that we were never meant to walk down. That's foolishness. And that's what Job is calling his wife. He's not saying you're an idiot. He's not saying that that you're not thinking this through. He's saying you're not considering God here. And look, this from a biblical perspective is the key issue for euthanasia. It's not devoid of compassion and love. It's not even devoid of intelligence and well-thought-through ideas. Although, I have to say at this point, there are a lot of people who are pro-euthanasia and anti this bill. So this bill has its own issues the way that it is written. But from a euthanasia perspective, there are some well-thought-through ideas. It's not devoid of that. What it is devoid of is an understanding of God, an understanding of who He is and how we relate to Him and how our lives relate to Him. 
It makes sense in our human wisdom. But our human wisdom is foolishness unless it is laced with God's wisdom. And Job, bless his heart, despite everything that had gone on, and I think because he had spent his whole life practicing for this moment, there's a a lesson there for us for another time, he spent his whole life practicing for this moment so that he could say that in the depths of his pain, he is still considering God. He is not ignoring the pain. He's going to spend the next 35 chapters complaining his face off about the situation that he is in. But he is never not going to consider God. And what does he say? He says, how can I take the good from God and not the bad? Translation, I don't like this. This is the definition of bad. But who am I to God? I mean, who am I to say that I get to choose my path? I mean, if God truly is the ruler of the universe, if he truly created everything, a point God is going to make very emphatically at the end of this book, then I've got to put whatever he puts in my path is up to him, not me. And I will accept whatever he puts in my path. Now, we cannot say that without truly understanding how hard that was for him to say. No matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, I will continue to maintain a posture, and this is the key word, of submission to God. I submit myself to God because that is what being a human means. Because God is my creator. And that's the hard truth about this whole debate. Even in the greatest moments of agony, when all hope seems lost, when there's nothing ahead of me but misery, The authority of God in our lives trumps our own. He has not given us, as individuals, the right to take our lives or to take another life. And we have to remember that it's not just the person choosing to die, but the person who is then forced to give them a lethal lethal injection. So as we approach this vote about allowing people to choose death, We're called by God to honor his sovereignty and to take on an attitude of Job who never found out why. We got to see at least the reason that he suffered. He never found out, as far as we know. Never knew why. But maintained an attitude of submission no matter what. So how's that sitting with you? Good? Bad? I kind of see the point, but it seems a little cold and heartless. Anyone? Doesn't it? Doesn't it seem, wow, that's depressing? Like God doesn't really care? I mean, God is God. You're just a little guy, so deal. That's the truth of it. And if that was it, if that was the full story, that would be pretty depressing. But it's not. We said that euthanasia makes sense without God because it provides an escape to death. right? Without God in the equation, death is the end. It's it's a relief from suffering. and, And so, great. 
But we know that God is in the equation. And so death is not the end. There is more to the story than what happens in the life that we live now. And the death that we experience is not the end of our existence, but a portal into something different, something more. And what God wants for us, what he has created for us, is a paradise. He wants to take us out of our suffering and lift us back up into an eternal and and pain-free existence. God is not just denying us the right for a dignified death. He is leading us to a glorified life. The purpose of God is life. And instead of saying we no longer see death as a welcome escape or an inevitable defeat, the enemy that always takes all of us, what we see is that God has overcome death. Death is no longer the end, but the beginning. He says in the Bible, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So just like Job's wife and the world around us, we're invited by Job's story to sit in that place of suffering. And we sit in that place of suffering, but unlike Job's wife and unlike the world, we, when we do this, we do not, when we, when we feel the pain, when we understand and experience the suffering that happens, it does not drive us to despair. It does not drive us into feeling like all hope is lost. Instead, it drives us deeper into the reality of who God is into his comfort. It drives us to our knees, praising God that he has provided a way out of suffering, that he has pushed us past the finality of death, that he's leading us into a pain-free, eternal future. And we praise him as we realize that he walks with us every step of the way, that when there is suffering, there is no longer loneliness in that place, because God is with us every step, and it drives us to cry out with the writer of Revelation, yes, come, Lord Jesus, come back, come and suffering for good, come and all of the pain, come bring peace and unbroken joy to us. That is what we want. The suffering that we see in the world is bad. It's evil. We want to to see it fixed. But instead of trying to find an escape from it, God is calling us to see it as God's ultimate victory, that he is victorious over this suffering. But until that moment, when he comes back and he fixes things, It should drive us to do something else. It should drive us to bring hope to those who are suffering. If we are going to be the voices in the street trying to shut down 
the end-of-life bell, then we also need to be the voices in the hospital rooms whispering hope into the lives of those gripped in pain. It cannot be enough for us to simply say this is wrong. We have to show what is right. The world accuses the church and Christianity of not having compassion because we, we, we won't let people take that choice. We don't believe that it is their choice to make. We need to show them that we're wrong about our compassion. We have compassion. We have love for people. But our love exists within the boundaries given to us by God's authority, His will, what He wants. And like walls of a river, those boundaries should drive our compassion and push and and energize and flow our compassion faster, stronger into the place that He is leading us, into the place where people are suffering. Maybe that means we think about volunteering with hospice. Maybe, and I'm I'm actually really interested in seeing where this one goes, but maybe it means putting together care packages for those whose, whose family members are going through this, to the families of those who are dying. Maybe it means recognizing the situations in our own lives, people we know that are going through this, and getting that godly boldness to step into that situation, to step into their pain, to experience their pain, and to bring hope into that space. I think at the very least it means praying fervently for that relief and that hope in people's lives. It cannot be nothing. If we're going to vote against this, there should be something flowing on from that. And I really encourage us to keep thinking and talking about this together. We've we've talked from the very beginning, Church Northwest is about helping each other take that next step. It's a community thing. It's not just a leadership-driven thing. So we as a leadership will think about maybe steps that we need to take. But let's also think together as as a community. What can we do together? How can we help? Who do we know? Where is God directing our compassion so that we can do something and provide hope? Whether the bill succeeds or fails, we can put it in a position, we can drive hope to people to where it becomes irrelevant. That it's just simply not a choice people want to make. Because there's so much more at play. Now, a common question that comes up, in fact, I got this this morning, is this question around choice, this the, the people who would be for this bill would say, look, you don't have to do it. You know, obviously, as Christians, you value life. You believe God is not giving you that choice. Fine, great, don't do it. But why are you stopping other people from making that choice? You don't believe in God. It's a valuable question. Ultimately, something you're going to have to come to terms with yourself. But as I, as I go back to the original message that we had in this series about what it means to be a Christian with a vote in a democratic society. And we talked about how our nation is asking us to give guidance to them for the way that we best feel, what we feel is best for the nation. Yeah, That's what democracy is. So I believe that we have this opportunity and responsibility with God in the equation 
to share with the country through our vote, through our voice, what we believe is best. Because ultimately we believe that those who are choosing do not choose without consequence. We know that hope is there for those who know him and hope is not there for those who don't. And death is not an escape from that. It's not. So we want to provide that hope, which means we've got to follow that up with action. We cannot simply deny people the choice and then say nothing else. We've got to show them that hope and that love. And I don't know what that looks like exactly for us, but I pray that we will continue this conversation as we move forward. All right, I think that's about enough for me, right? (laughs) I'm going to pray. And then I think we have another song and just a chance for us to let God sort of speak into our hearts a little bit um, about maybe how he's stirring us forward. Lord, I just thank you. um, I thank you that you not only give us things, restrictions for the way that we live our lives, but you give them, you give us in the context of hope. You tell us what we are supposed to do and not supposed to do, and and we submit to that as our ruler and our king. But we thank you that you do so in love. You don't want people suffering so that you can enjoy that. That's not who you are. You are a God of love. So, Lord, help us to have your wisdom as we approach this election not just with this issue, but with all all of the other issues as well, with whatever ticks we put on those papers. Lord, may it be guided by your wisdom and your compassion and your love. And then when we're finished voting and we go back home, Lord, guide us, direct us, push us towards showing that compassion and that love to the world in a way that helps to alleviate the suffering, that brings hope to people. Because you've got hope for days and people desperately need it. Guide us. Be our king. Lead us forward. It's in your name we pray. Amen.